Well, good morning. Trust you all are doing well. Uh, glad you are here this morning. We're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis. So if you'd be turning there to Genesis chapter 26, and we'll be looking um, at uh, starting in verse 26 through the end of chapter 26, Lord willing, as we consider uh, this conflict that uh, Isaac has suffered in the... Um, the desert of present-day Israel. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 26, verse 26. This is God's word. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazath, his advisor, and Thickel, the commander of his army, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me? And have sent me away from you. They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate, and they drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city to this day is Beersheba. And when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We don't have to look far in our world to know that one of the cries that goes out across the land these days is for peace. In fact, maybe that's something that happens uh, all over. Uh, I was watching the news as we watched the ball drop on New Year's Eve just last month, and they interview people, you know, in Times Square and asking them New Year's resolutions or hopes for the future. And almost always you hear the phrase, world peace, that God would bring peace to the world or that uh, there would be a sense of peace. And what do we mean by that? Well, that is, remains to be seen uh, by many. But what we see on the earth today is conflict. We think, oh, there could be peace if just, you know, Ukraine would give up their land. There would be peace. Or if we look at it from the other side, if Russia just went home. Or if Gaza would just surrender all of Hamas. Or if Israel would just stop attacking. Or we see it in other places uh, that we often ne get neglected from the news, like in Miramar where there's genocide going on. We think of other places in the world where there's famine, where governments are corrupt and stealing things from their people, and their people are starving. Or we think of 
all kinds of different ways that people groups are suffering or are marginalized in one way or the other. We think of suffering in our own communities. We think of our own families or maybe even our own marriages, that there's conflict, that there's trouble, it seems, and there's a cry that we want peace. Well, regardless of where that is for you, we see here in our text this morning that Isaac is having a great amount of conflict. And this conflict isn't new. It's conflict that really his father struggled with as well. And mainly it was over water. It was kind of the the needs of a a Bedouin-type people, a sojourner that was being blessed with animals and with servants, and so the demand for water came. You know, Boone thinks they have a problem with water and having to do uh, the water grab here in Ash County, Uh, and you think about the need for water, but how much more in a desert place that water is necessary for life and for the basic necessities of all that we're called to do. But we want to look at this at the end here of chapter 26. It's surprising that it's through the mouth of a pagan king that really God's plan and God's redemptive purposes are being made known, not just to Isaac, but to the surrounding peoples. And it's coming through the mouth of a Philistine, which you might find interesting because as the the Old Testament goes on, we know that these are going to be enemies of God's people in a very real way. And we're prior to the law here, we're prior to Moses, we're prior to them coming into the land. We know that this is just preparation of what God will ultimately do in the history of Israel. But there's strife. In fact, we know that God really brings this to attention through the very life of Isaac's son, Jacob, which we'll see in the pages ahead. Jacob meaning strife or one that connives, one that wrestles. Israel, that's what it means to strive with God. And so let's look at this passage in three short points. First of all, we'll see that the conflict continues as far as the water battles Uh, But then notice that the Philistines are wanting to make a covenant, but they're doing this cautiously because they fear Isaac and ultimately fear the Lord. We'll look at that. And then lastly, at the end of uh, the chapter, uh, it's it's really a precursor to what we're going to look at in chapter 27, that Esau is making his own commitments and covenants with foreign wives and how this brings great trial upon Esau. Uh, his family. So we'll take a look at, at all these. But let's look again here at verse 26. Notice that um, the context after we looked at this last week, they've been digging wells, they've been praying to God, and finally God brings relief and brings water. And what does Isaac do? He worships, he builds an altar, he makes much of the God of his father Abraham. And he's worshiping. And it's in this context that he pitches his tent there and decides to dwell at Beersheba. And his servants are digging. That is what's going on in the background. And we know at the end of this passage that they come to him that same day and say, we found water. This is the trial that's ongoing. But notice also that the conscience of Abimelech is bothering him. He's a very interesting character here, him and his father before him. 
that while the Philistines are in a different light later on in the Old Testament, here they're very peaceable people. But realize who they're dealing with. They're dealing with simple shepherds in the desert. They've been very kind to Abraham and to Isaac. But notice the clarity that's coming to their attention. He is being blessed, as we saw in the last passage, that's brought envy to the Philistines. They were envious of the growth. Notice uh, in the early part of what we looked at in, in verse 12, that he sowed and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. That's unheard of. It's, it's almost perfection that he has sowed in such a way. It says he had flocks and herds and servants added to his number. And he's becoming mighty. He's becoming organized in that way where he's having to, to set these things up. And who's watching? The Philistines. But notice that the conflict is continuing. But what did Isaac do? Well, we've noticed in the last passage that Isaac just keeps moving. The conflict follows and he moves. The conflict follows and he moves. They're fighting over the water rights of these wells. Now, who started it? Well, really, the Philistines did. They, by spite, are filling in the wells that Abraham dug. And what is um, Isaac doing with his men? He's going back and uncovering them and seeking to find those. And then what do they do? After they uncover those, they quarrel about them. And so what does Isaac do? Well, he moves on and digs another well. So the quarreling is continuing. Reminds us of the Proverbs, perhaps, um, how quarreling starts. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out of water. So quit before a quarrel breaks out. For those of you who have lived life, you know that there's a way to stop an argument before it starts. Some of you children are still learning that. Um, but a quarrel has a starting point. But like the letting out of water or the breaking of a dam, water has disastrous effects, and you can't just let a little bit out. It's like trying to pick up water after you've let it out. You can't. It's just, it's out there. And so stop before it starts. Proverbs 10, 12 also says, hatred stirs up strife. So as we read through chapter 26 here, we see the temperature rising. We can feel it. Oh, is there going to be war? If you've never read this before, it's like, hey, hey it's going to be a conflict. It's going to be blood. Isaac's going to rise up and slay his enemies. And we're looking for that. What's going to happen here? You feel it in the text. But no, Isaac, seeking to be peaceful, is moving. And he keep, keeps going. And he's offended, but he is not put out. In fact, we saw in the last passage, they asked him to leave. And what did he do? He left. He went on from them. So it seems peculiar here in verse 26 that the, while the conflict's continuing, who but Abimelech and his commander of his army in all the pomp and circumstance of formality come to this shepherd, Isaac, and Isaac is wondering why they're there. Look at, look at the text here. Abimelech comes from Gerar, so that would be a little bit of a journey we're looking at east, going east. You can picture inland. And notice he's with Ahazath, his advisor. In other words, Abimelech's been seeking wisdom on, how, how do I deal with this? We're, we're, we're causing strife. God is clearly blessing Isaac. He's multiplying, and we're a little nervous. 
and notice Fickle, the commander of his army, is with him as well. So there's a show of force, possibly. But their intent is not so. And we know that from the passages before this, but even now. And so notice who speaks first. He shows up, and Isaac is the one to speak. Look at verse 27. And Isaac says to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? In other words, it's a question. And Isaac is, is right to, to ask such a question. He has done what they requested. He has sought no harm to them. He has simply just kept moving as they have been envious of him. But something is wrong in the heart of Abimelech, let alone the rest of the Philistines, that they are pursuing a peaceable solution, even though in some of these ways they're causing it, the conflict. So what gives? Well, this is what he asked. Why did you come to me after you sent me away? And notice their answer in verse 28. Just like all conflict, you got to get down to the real purpose of it. That's why I was saying in tongue-in-cheek in the way that we can't just solve wars by just saying, oh yeah, you go home and you go home. There's a conflict. There's a reason the conflict is happening. And you can't just stop. You, you, the, the conflict only stops when the issue is resolved. And sometimes there's multiple issues. And in this case, it's water rights. It's in the case of um, doing things that are malicious to Isaac and his shepherds. And let alone Isaac's father, who's now dead. But he worked hard to dig these wells and they're being filled in. And notice what they say in verse 28. It says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Now don't miss this. These are pagan people recognizing that the Lord has been with him. It's so clear by the multiplication and the blessing upon him that it's otherworldly. There's no other explanation that the Yahweh of the Bible is blessing Isaac. We see that here. They use the covenant name of God in verse 28. In your English Bibles, it should be capital L-O-R-D there. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Isn't it interesting that when God is blessing his people, even the ungodly pay attention to that? Isn't that interesting? I mean, I find it interesting even in the news these days when Christians are talked about in the news as if we're all figured out in some way, shape, or form. Or even as politicians say, the evangelicals, as if we're just like a, a group of uh, weirdos, you know, that, that we, we all think alike and we're all, you know, the same. And while we do have a passion for the Lord and we certainly are uh, seeking the same thing, hopefully, um, that we are seen as God's people. We are seen as worshipers of God, as Christians. We're peculiar to a world that's passing away because our priorities are different. Our passions are different. Our desires to see God glorified and God's rule and reign established. But it's very interesting that out of the mouth of a pagan king comes this 
great reality that God had already told Isaac at the beginning of the passage that God was going to do this. He's going to bless him. And then he does. And Isaac knows this, but also these kings notice this. And he goes on, look at verse, the end of verse 28. It says, so we said, in other words, this is the reality. So what are they thinking? So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Now, multiple things are going on here. Isn't it interesting when we when even pagans see that God is blessing, they know there's something not right and they're on the outside of it. They know that just by human nature and the fallenness of man and the depravity of man that they aren't in God's favor. God is showing favor to those who are his own and they are not in that circle. It's very interesting. How do they get closer to it? Notice they answer this in a human way. We want to make a covenant with you. We, we're, we know that we've, we've perturbed you. We know that we've been jealous of you. But we feel this. And we feel like we need to take the initiative to bring a covenant between us. Isn't that interesting? How often it is that the world doesn't even know what they're seeking after. But they do detect danger. They do detect that they are outside the circle. And they do detect where favor is. It's all right here in this, in this verse. And so we see that the solution, in their opinion, is to make a covenant. And while that is agreeable, certainly to Isaac in a human way, Isaac knows beyond this that ultimately the land's his. All those wells belong to him. The earth belongs to the Lord, and he belongs to the Lord, so everything's fine already. But there's a sense that while we're not of this world, we're traveling through this world, that we're called to uh, work with and be involved with the things going on in this world, which involve sinful, rebellious people to God. And so it says... That as they sought to do this, they wanted to make a covenant. So this is our second point here. Notice that they're suggesting that this is what they would do. And notice they're the only ones talking. Isaac is listening. Look at verse 29. That you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, which is partially true, and have sent you away in peace. That also was true. So in what ways has, have they done him no harm? Well, they haven't bothered him at all. If you remember from the last passage, even though Isaac lied about Rebekah, that he made a, uh, a rule that no one was to touch him or his wife on threat of death. Capital punishment if anyone messes with this guy named Isaac. Isaac, in God's providence, used the security of Abimelech to be safe in the land from other worries. He could sleep well at night just because he knew that the Lord was watching for him as he had promised. But notice here that it's through the mouth of this pagan king that he's saying, we haven't touched you. But notice there's fear because he starts with in verse 29 that you will do us no harm. Now, where would he get that? Why, where would there be any understanding that Isaac was going to show them harm at all? Well, we know that Isaac was not trusting of them 
because he lied to them about his, his wife, for instance. He assumed that they would kill him and take his wife. He had an assumption, but those assumptions were probably realistic. But ultimately, that's where his trust in the Lord comes. How often is it as believers that God brings circumstances, people, even unbelievers into our lives and ultimately tests our faith? Tests us to see what quality of, of, of authenticity that we are looking unto the Lord and completely dependent upon him. But we know that God owns all things and he rules all things. But are we trusting him in the issues of life? Notice that Isaac did. And he did no harm. He didn't find vengeance for the malice of filling in the wells. He didn't do anything. So where is this fear of harm coming from? Well, clearly it's happening in their, their hearts. They are afraid that with the blessing of Isaac, he's becoming more and more powerful and we are being jerks to him by filling in his wells and arguing with him about it. Surely he's perturbed with us and we, we really just need to take the initiative here to pursue peace before something breaks out because we've already had quarrels. Now, in the context of the, of, of the scriptures here, there's been no one fighting and there's been no death, but there's been this assumption that the temperature is rising on both ends. We know that Isaac was worn out. Um, that was the context of him going before the Lord and worshiping. So isn't it interesting that the Lord is bringing an answer to prayer here through this uh, humility in one way of Abimelech, but also the heart of Abimelech is shaking. And ultimately, it's a recognition that there's something behind Isaac that is to be feared, and that is God himself. And God is for Isaac, and they are not on the same side. So, how do you resolve conflict? Well, here in miniature form, we see that conflict is resolved when you come to an agreement with both parties. That's what a covenant is. Two parties that are currently uh, separated can be brought together in an agreement by both parties agreeing to that covenant. And sometimes it goes back and forth to make it agreeable to each. And so this covenant is suggested. Now look at how um, Isaac responds. Um, it says you, or, or at the end of verse 29, they said, you are now blessed of the Lord. Well, is it just now that he's blessed of the Lord or has he been blessed? The, the truth of the matter, God is the one who is blessing him, but they're pronouncing that God has blessed him, not just in the way that they're recognizing, but that God is also going to bring a blessing through this covenant. That's very interesting. Later on in the Old Testament, we find that God is warning the people to not make covenants with the people of Canaan. Why? because God gave them the land and ultimately he's going to uproot them from the land. This is what he said he would do. This is the conflict of historically the Holy Land is that God clearly gave this to his people and while there are people dwelling on the land, it's not theirs. Can you smell conflict? Of course you can. Ultimately, the conflict is between the people and God himself. After all, even Isaac and Abraham before him went to this land because God told them to go, and they believed God. 
there was times that surely they desired to leave the land and go to Egypt. And God remained them there. So now look at verse 30 in this covenant. So they make this covenant. In verse 30 it says, So he made them a feast. Notice this is Isaac cooking for them. He makes them a feast. They ate and they drank. Probably a, a large host of, of people that have visited here. And so it's a big feast. Uh, and, and in the morning, they rose early and they exchanged oath. We, we see this same pattern uh, in the context of Genesis. We saw this with Rebecca, remember, as uh, agreeing to be Isaac's bride, that uh, often they would eat a meal together, showing that there was unity, there was agreeable, uh, a, 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 a reaching of an agreement, and then they would eat together. And notice it's in this context that they make an oath. Now, this is important, a good place in Scripture to remind us that an oath is simply an agreement between two parties. We often speak of oaths and vows. Vows are often uh, towards the Lord, um, and we make vows in that direction. But uh, uh, with humans, we're making oaths to each other. We're making promises to one another. And so notice that these oaths are in the context of a feast. They're exchanging them. And then Isaac sends them on their way. In other words, what has he agreed to? That he's basically just not going to cause problems. He's not going to attack them. It's a covenant of peace, which is something that Isaac was already doing. They just wanted to put in writing. And so he sends them on their way, and they departed from him, notice, in peace. And it's in this context that we get word here in verse 32 that that same day, as peace is resolved here, that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug. And that's speaking of the well that was dug in verse 25 um, uh, and earlier uh, at, at Beersheba here. Um, if you look back down to um, uh, verse 20, they uh, were at the well Essek. And then they contended about that. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called it Sitna. Look at verse 22. He moved from there, dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. But it's then, in verse 23, that they go up to Beersheba, and it's where he, the Lord appears to him, and he worships. And the servants are digging. Look at verse 25. So it's the same digging that concludes here in verse 32 that they dug this well and at the bottom of that well they found water. So they're rejoicing. So notice he calls it Sheba. Sheba in Hebrew is uh, the well of oath or the well of seven. In other words, he is honoring the Lord and not just what God had done with his father uh, uh, Abraham, but also how God has been faithful in all of this well digging process to bring water that ultimately God is blessing. He is providing just as he said. Therefore, he names the city Beersheba as it is to this day. So it's in this conflict and in this covenant that God brings these things to pass to establish Isaac to continue growing in the land 
to continue blessing him. And remember what that blessing was. If you look back to the beginning of chapter 26, that he's going to sojourn in the land and God promises he would be with him, that he would bless him. He would give him offspring. He would give him the land. He would establish the oath that he had swore to Abraham, his father, which was to give him all of this and that he would multiply his offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give your offspring all these lands and you shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice, verse 5, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God is glorifying himself through his servant Isaac. So what? What does this have to do with us? And what does this have to do ultimately with the continuing promise as we see here in the text of Genesis. Well, notice that this chapter ends with Isaac marrying. And there's a connecting of verse 34 and 35 that connects all the conflict that we've just seen and now have peace with in one sense. And yet there's a conflict that's not just without, but we're going to find that Isaac now has conflict within his family and in the opposite direction. Notice what Esau does, and this sets us up for chapter 27 in how uh, Esau truly is not one that's going to bear the promise into the next generation, but rather Jacob, even though Jacob is basically stealing it and robbing Esau of it as the firstborn. So look what he does. Esau, we see, has, is 40 years old. Notice that that's the same age that Isaac was when he took Rebekah. You might think, oh, that's kind of old. But in those days, they lived longer, and so um, marriage, uh, at least in this family, was happening around 40 years of age. Um, many scholars have looked at that of why, and there's not really any clear clarity to why. It's not that they couldn't have married before that, but based upon all that was going on, um, there was a sense of trusting the Lord to provide and even in the patriarchs, there was obviously not a desire to intermarry. Remember how this grieved Abraham? We've got to find my son a wife. I need you to go back to my people. And he sent his servant. Remember that? Well, Esau takes things in his own hands here. Notice that when he's 40 years old, it says he took. So, again, understand the culture. We saw that arranged marriages were the norm. We saw how Abraham was involved in choosing um, a wife for his son and, and took great care and prayed about it and sent Eliezer and he was, was really burdened about this. But Esau, his character is that he takes it into his own hands. And notice here, he takes not just one wife and that from the Hittites to be his wife. And then Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. So not just one, but double trouble from uh, pagan families that ultimately, verse 35, gives the result on Isaac and Rebekah. And it says they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. They, speaking of these wives. It could also mean plural, Esau and his wives. In Hebrew, it really means that they were bitterness of spirit unto them. That, that there was this family conflict now that our son has intermarried and made oaths and commitments and um, to, to carnal families, to families that were not 
um, a part of the promise. And so this brings great weight on them, and you see the conflict from without and now the conflict from within. And Isaac is pressed on both sides. And this is, brings us the expectation of what we'll see in chapter 27. But how do we pull this together and see, well, what is it in our lives and how God is working in and through the uh, circumstances of our lives to bring much glory to his name, even through unbelievers? How does he use conflict and our response to it to bring himself much glory? Well, consider a passage like Romans 12, verse 17 through 21. The clear call from the Apostle Paul to Christians is to repay no one evil for evil. In Isaac's situation, you filled up my well, I'm going to fill up yours. You're going to fill up my well, I'm going to cause you trouble, which is surely what the Philistines feared, but they weren't getting. But as Romans reads out, it says, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Isn't that just like the Lord? God glorifies himself through the lives of his people. When we respond to conflict and even straight malice, and we return kindness in its place. Well, that often doesn't sound good. That sounds like we're setting ourselves up to be doormats. And yet, that's not the case. Verse 18 of Romans 12 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice we can't control other people, is what Paul's saying. But we certainly control ourselves by the power of the Spirit that as much as depends on us, that we live peaceable with all. And then he goes on, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Church, isn't that hard? Isn't it hard when you've been wronged to not avenge yourself? You, you, a conflict happens and you want to settle it right then and there. You feel that way sometimes? I mean, something even small, like someone running a stop sign, it does that for me. Maybe you're better than I am in that sense, but that's how easy it is for me to lose my cool. Like, you almost hit me. Like, how unloving of you. <laughs> Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How much conflict can be evaporated in our lives if we just simply trusted that God in his great justice on the cross and what he's done for us allows us to extend that kind of mercy and grace to other people who certainly deserve wrath and judgment. I don't have this figured out. I'm living here as well. But Paul says to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Until you obey in such a way as Paul is saying here, you don't know the joy and almost hilarious spirit that comes over you when you realize everything's going to be okay. How is it we ought to be the most gracious people to overlook offenses? Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. While we're yet sinners, he died for us. 
We have a way that as Christians we ought to overcome evil in such a way as not to say that it doesn't matter, not to say that it doesn't hurt, not to say there's not consequences, but just to simply return good for evil. That's where the rub comes for us as Christians. But God, this isn't right. But some conflict won't be resolved until our King of Kings returns. But know for certain it will be resolved. Do not overcome by evil. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what is this, this, this context here? How, how do we deal with this, this pursuit of peace? We want peace, and we know as believers we'll, we'll, we'll have peace when the Prince of Peace returns. We know all conflict will be resolved, but what does this do for us? What a passage like this where we're seeing that God resolved this particular conflict with Isaac through a covenant, how is it that God is working this in us? Well, it doesn't always mean that we have a, uh, an agreement or a covenant with those that we're in conflict with, but our covenant in Christ certainly brings peace to the situation. And I think that's the content of the scriptures. Consider First Peter who's sometimes the hardest to submit to, it would be authority, right? Well, listen to Peter's words. Same subject, different circumstance. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Did you hear that? He doesn't say be subject to every human institution. He said be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, filter what you're doing through the purposes intents of God. For the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor's supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, God is saying government's his idea. He's put those people in place. And what is their job? It's to punish evil and to praise those who do good. And boy, have we seen that flip, haven't we? Sometimes governors destroy what is good and praise what is evil and you don't have to do much but turn on the news today to see that perversion is now to be celebrated and normality is is evil i mean you all can tell me the stories i hear them it's in our workplaces it's in our documents it's in our court system it's everywhere but, he says, for this is the will of God. Listen, verse 15, 1 Peter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, by God's definition, that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Did you hear that? One of the only places in the New Testament, there's seven of them, that clearly state what God's will is, that it's the will of God that we do good. And how do we do good? It's simply allowing the, the Lord to work in and through our lives in a way that he is constantly trying to do, that we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I like to say these days, common sense isn't common anymore. But not just common sense. This is the definition by God that we do good in the world and that God is, by in doing so, putting the ignorance of foolish people to silence. And so he follows that up in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. Notice that those who look to God and understand their covenant with God are truly free people. 
even though we're persecuted, even though we are wronged, even though we suffer, we are truly free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In other words, we're looking past our employers. We're looking past those who have wronged us. We're looking past the, ultimately to the Lord and saying, behind all this, the Lord is working. And so Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. His summation there is ultimately that after all these things and understanding our relationship with God, it's based on our covenant with God that enables us to be people of peace. But it's very interesting in the context of the New Testament that Christians are called to be both peaceful but yet warriors. But in what sense? Well, we don't have time to go into this this morning, but in the context of this, we're called to be warriors of everything in us that would be malicious back to people who are malicious to us. It's to kill the sin in our hearts by the power of the Spirit that is where the violence remains, not outwardly in this way. And I know I can hear the thoughts going on in your head as they do in mine. Is there a time for Christians to fight? And I think, yes, every day. But how will we truly understand what and what we aren't supposed to fight for if we're not doing the true battle that God has called us to, which is to kill sin? And so when there are natural situations that come into our lives, that certainly are offensive and do deserve a response, that God, even in the midst of that, is seeking to bring peace in these circumstances. And it doesn't come overnight. Sometimes this goes on for a long time. As we see this internal conflict with uh, Isaac and Rebecca is going to be a lifetime. Children, when you choose a spouse, as much as that is a, seems to be a personal decision, we think about that marriage that way in the West, it's a life decision, but it also affects everyone around you. And regardless of how you look at marriage, marriage involves families on both sides. It's something that is God is going to use circumstantially both good and evil to bring about his purposes. And so notice the spite that even Esau in this passage brings in the conflict there. That his choices, his selfishness, and then his outright spitting in the face of the promise of God, which truly he has heard, which he has despised before his own brother, despising his birthright, is now bearing fruit in his alliance with uh, unsaved women that are certainly going to aid in his bitterness in the future. This is going to cause conflict, but it's in the context of this conflict that God is bringing hope. So our definition of peace as Christians is completely different at times in the world. The world, it doesn't make sense to them that peace would be made without an agreement or without sacrifice. They can't understand how we could be wronged and not wrong in return. They can't understand that. Why? Because they don't understand the gospel. And the gospel, it tells us that people are blinded to the gospel because of the prince of the power of the air. That peace is ultimately not going to cut it in an earthly sense. Ultimately, it's our peace with God that is ultimately the reason for our uh, physical 
um, peace coming out in our lives. It's the eternally uh, settled peace of our hearts, knowing that we are no longer enemies of God, which enables us to have peace in the circumstances of our lives. So, Christians are called to be peaceful, yes. But, Jesus himself said these words in John 16, verse 33. He says, I said these things to you, which is in the context of him encouraging his disciples about many things prior to his death. So I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Notice that peace is something that God gives and that we have in relation to him. Just the settling of physical circumstances isn't by definition peace. There's still a rumbling of war going on. And so Jesus reminds them of this when he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The truth there, saints, for us this morning is to remember that while we live in a world of conflict within and without, and while we would love to deny those and wish they weren't there, God has allowed them into our lives by his providence for our good. Why? That the great covenant that he made for us in Christ might come to the surface, that we might look at it, that we might look at his majesty and, and worship him and say, God, you are so good to take me out of the mire and make me your child and give me your inheritance in Christ. And that my future is bright, that when I die and I leave this life, I'm going into eternal joys. And the suffering that the unsaved suffer is just the beginning of an eternity of sufferings. Do you see why, Christian, you can be patient? It's why God is working that in your soul to be able to not respond as the world responds. I'm not there. I'm not even the best example in the room for such things. What is it, though, that pushes you over the edge? Are we, like God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and loving kindness? Are we tender and meek? I need work. We all need work. How in the world can we love people like that? And the answer is we can't. We can't without his help. But the only way that the scriptures tell us that we can learn to love like that is to just look at him and understand what he has done for us in Christ. We can't do that in human sense. I can't love someone the way they deserve just because I uh, observe them loving and I certainly find that hard when I'm trying to love sinful people, if you know what I mean. They don't deserve it, and that's true. But how do we love them? God tells us to love each other. Only way is by looking in and savoring the sweetness of God's patience and long-suffering and kindness to us. And when we think on that, and when we dwell on that, and when we meditate on that, as truly Isaac was, we can do truly remarkable things like Isaac did, and abstain from the conflict, and just keep digging, and find more water, and keep blessing, and let God add his blessing, 
And isn't it amazing here that it's in the context of loving like this that God gives his ability to love like he loves that our hearts become free. This is how we can love the lost. This is how we can grow in affections for God in such a way that what concerns him concerns us. This is why we can start praying for unreached people groups and truly mean our prayers and desire it, that our hearts are connected with God, that God, we want people to be saved. We don't want them to go into a crisis eternity. It drives the very passion and fervor of our faith when we are dwelling on Christ. And Isaac did that. He worshiped. He knew that God had promised and he trusted him and it changed him. Even in the midst of the conflict, God was using the pressure and the rub to make something beautiful. And that is ultimately a magnifying glass on the greatness and glory of Christ. Oh, church, how do we respond to conflict? I need it. You need it. May he use the pressures of our life to sanctify us completely, that Christ would be glorified and he would be all that's left in us, that he might be lifted up, that he might use us to take his great message of redemption to people who desperately need it while we rejoice in his great redemption. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for not just giving us text on a page Oh God, your word is not boring. And forgive us when there's times that we make the things of God boring. They are not. You are attractive. You are awesome. Thank you for a text like this that reminds us that you do bring providential peace into our lives. Even through covenants or agreements with unbelievers at times. Other times it's a bad thing as we weren't able to talk about this morning. It's a time not to be unequally yoked. And that's not what we were focusing on this morning, but there's that warning for us. Oh God, would you use conflict to mold and shape us into your image? Father, I know in my own soul there's many areas there that, that you need to dissolve anger and frustration and Lord, truly, we all suffer that in this world that we don't feel at home. We long for a home that we do not have yet that you are preparing for us. We long for you to return, and yet we find ourselves here. And it's because you're not done. You're redeeming us, and you want to preach your message through us to those who most need it. God, would you open our eyes this week to those around us? as we go about our lives that desperately need you and that we would be able to minister to them the great gospel of Jesus Christ, that you might draw many to yourself. Oh God, use us in this community for your servants and then take us to the ends of the earth as you would see fit for your glory and for our good. And Lord, help us to dwell in Beersheba, to enjoy the water that only you can provide by your grace and for your glory. Amen.